for things agreeable to God's will. Psalm 65 can be described as a prayer for rain, a prayer for rain. You can hear all of the language that has to do with the crop and the harvest, asking God to to give uh, His abundant blessings. And most of us aren't farmers, but we can imagine what it would be like as a farmer who needs rain. You want to have the rain to, to water the earth, and yet you don't know whether or not God will send rain in any particular year. There are years of, of drought. There are years of abundance. There, there are years of too much rain. We had one of those a, a couple of years ago. There, were too much, there was too much rain, and it interfered with, with the crops. And so, asking for these kinds of things, the farmer prays for rain. We, we pray for the Lord to, uh, to give us work to do and employment and uh, food on the table and a, a place to live, a place to, to love and serve God and, and serve our, our neighbors. We sense that there's something about the character of God that, that He tends to give His people blessings that are good. And we know He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He'll never abandon us. He'll always give us exactly what we need to serve Him. But in terms of the specifics, we, we don't actually know in any particular instance, is God going to give me that job? Is He going to send the rain? And so we ask, are, are these things that are agreeable to as well? How, how, do we, how do we think uh, about those things? Well, of course, uh, we can look to this psalm for some help for how to go about it. There are things that we know about God. We know that He's good, that He loves us as His children, that He loves to give His children good things. We know that there are many times in the past where He has purposed to send rain, to send a bountiful harvest, to give us that job, to, to give an abundant blessing. Psalm 65 names these things back to God. It, it says what He has already done. And as those who pray to God, we are to say to Him what He has already done as one of the ways to implore Him to do those things again. So we offer up our desires to God, praying that it would be His will to give many things that we have determined would be for our benefit. But nevertheless, we also come to prayer knowing that as we commune with God, He may very well transform our desires. In fact, He has given us a promise to do just that, that the things that we want, perhaps the things that we think we need or thought we need, uh, we end up thinking something else through the blessing of prayer. But we also come to prayer knowing that there are many things that we can be confident and sure that He will give to us. And thus we come truly expecting abundant blessings, blessings that really go beyond just material resources, but rather the spiritual blessings that God gives us as we commune with Him. And that becomes the great gift of prayer, for it is in prayer that we commune with the one for whom we were made. So let's consider these things together. Tonight, we consider just mainly two things. We pray because God hears, and we pray because God helps. We pray because God hears, and we pray because God helps. What are the things that fuel prayer? One of the main things that fuels prayer is our doctrine of God. What we believe about God, conviction, a sincerely held, genuine conviction about who God is, 
If it's formed by Scripture, that will fuel prayer. Worship, praise, prayer, these things uh, have, a, have a mutual relationship, symbiotic relationship, if you will. One Puritan prayer goes like this, may my praise turn to prayer and may my prayer turn to praise. They, they, they go back and forth. They have a relationship with one another. This is one of the Psalms that sets forth God as so majestic and so powerful that we can do nothing, if we heed the words of this psalm, we can do nothing but come to Him in both prayer and praise. We read there in verse 1, praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. There are other translations that, that get at a little bit of a, a different nuance of meaning. One says, praise waits for you, O God, in Zion. Praise is, in other words, praise is silent for you. The sense here is that uh, the spirit of true worship lies in wait for God to arrive. It also highlights the sense of awe that a believer has before God. Sometimes silence is all that we can say. Sometimes there are no words that exactly capture uh, the awe that we feel uh, before the Lord. Perhaps some of you felt some of that this afternoon. Just the sense of awe, the glory the glory of the Lord um, that, that we see in Jesus Christ. Alexander Carmichael says in commenting on this verse, there are times when man's thoughts are overmatched. Really, anytime we're, we're rightly grasping something about God, our thoughts are overmatched. It's more than we can say. It's more than we can sense. It's more than we can know. And so it says this, when the mind can rise no higher, it falls to admiring. It falls to worship. But the mind can go no higher, so what does it do? It falls down in the worship of God. Our hearts ought to be eager to rise in worship. We ought to be careful that we make sure that we rise in worship to nothing else. Right, to go back to this afternoon when, when the, choir, the choir sings at, at the direction of the, of the director, the conductor, and no one else if anyone else were to, to stand up and, and to start waving the arms, the choir would not do anything. It moves and sings and goes at the direction of the conductor. No one else. And the sense here is that praise, worship, moves at the God of Scripture and nothing else. Your heart ought to be moved to worship only at the thought of God. Praise is silent for everything else other than God. That's the sense. Our hearts move in worship to God alone and nothing else. Think of 1 John 5, the call to keep yourselves from idols. Why? Because in our corruption, in our sinfulness, oftentimes we are brought to a place where our hearts are moved to praise, to worship things other than God. We need to be very careful of that. What is it when we are worshiping rightly, well, our hearts move for God and, uh, and to no one else. And if that is the heart of the worshiper, if that is the heart of, of the one who, who comes before the Lord, if that's the extent to which we adore God, that we so protect that place of our heart that's reserved for Him alone, then we naturally flow to what the psalm says next, performing our vows. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. These vows are not going to be uh, 
dutiful drudgeries. It's not going to be dreadful. What we read again in 1 John chapter 5. His commandments are not burdensome. This is how you know you are a child of God. You keep his commandments, but his commandments are not burdensome. It's not something that you look upon and say it's drudgery. But what God commands you to do in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit becomes your great joy to do, both because of the gratitude that you have, the awe that you have in light of the gospel, and because of the Holy Spirit that he gives to us by faith in Jesus Christ. All of those things put together there just in in verse 1, we we get the sense uh, why we are to see and, and know and be convinced that this God hears prayer. He's powerful. He's majestic. Our worship waits. It lies in wait for Him. It moves at Him alone. And He alone is worthy of our service. And then we see in verse 2, we hear of the God who hears prayer. And this is who He is. How do we know that He hears prayers? Well, we get the sense there from verse 1, right? A majestic God, a, a powerful God to whom praise is due. He's the God who hears prayers because He is mighty, because He is sovereign, because He is the creator of the world, and because He alone is enthroned. And thus, it is natural to believe and to know that if He has created all things, if He has spoken the world into existence out of nothing, He created everything from nothing, He did not find a, a ball of, of, of matter, of pre-existent matter or stuff that he could form. He created the matter, and then he created the world. And if he is that mighty, if he is that powerful, then sh- certainly he is the God who hears prayer. But there's another clue in verse 2, or verse 1, that he is the God who is in Zion. He is the God who is in Zion. Zion, of course, place in Jerusalem where true worship takes place. So how do we see this in, in light of the fulfillment of Christ that, that praise waits for God in Zion and he is the God who hears prayer with this connection to the place of Zion? Well, where does true worship take place for us? As New Testament, New Covenant believers, as the New Testament church, where does true worship take place? Where is our Zion? Jesus Christ is our Zion. True worship takes place in Jesus Christ. It's not confined to a geographic place. Of course, here we assemble for worship, and this is a a time where we especially ascribe praise to God, and, and, and we believe that God is especially present, welcomes us into His presence when we assemble in a holy way as God's people. But true worship takes place in Christ by the power of the Spirit, in spirit and in truth. And so how do we know that God hears prayer? God hears prayer because of Jesus Christ. And as we read in our catechism answer, it is in the name of Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ that uh, our whole mentality about prayer, what we believe about prayer, what we know about prayer, takes on uh, enormously new meanings. We pray in in the name of Christ. And that is a wonderful blessing that the the first audience of Psalm 65 did not have. They were not praying in the name of Jesus Christ. To pray on this side of the fulfillment brings us into a whole new arena of God's blessing in prayer. And because we know of Jesus Christ, 
And because we love him and because we pray in his name, it enriches the prayers of God's people. Because of our great high priest, as we read in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Understand that that's a blessing that the first audience here would not have had. The assurance of Christ is your great high priest. It, it furnishes you, you with confidence for prayer. It enlivens your prayer. It gives you comfort as you pray. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Ephesians 2, speaking of Jew and Gentile brought together in Christ, it says, through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That, that, that sense of access to the very throne room of heaven. Uh, the confidence for that reality, for that truth, uh, is deeply enlivened through Jesus Christ. It is because we pray in the name of Jesus Christ that we also know the depth of uh, the promise and the blessing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also, uh, as the third person of the Trinity, an aid in prayer, an advance in confidence for the people of God in prayer. The Holy Spirit, certainly present and active in God's people of old, before Christ. But certainly we see a, a, an historical and redemptive development at the day of, of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit is given in, in greater fullness to the believer. And this, of course, then also becomes an aid in prayer. As the Holy Spirit indwells us as the, the new temple of God in Christ, that that, too, is something that enriches our prayers, and we thank God for it. Romans 8 speaks of the Spirit helping us in our weakness. Verse 26, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That the Spirit intercedes even for us in prayer, something that ought to fill us with confidence. As we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, another thing that fills us with, with, uh, with confidence and enriches our faith in prayer is a, the full flowering of the doctrine of adoption. So we read the question and answer of God as our Father, the, the preface to the Lord's Prayer, our Father which art in heaven. And there we read in the Catechism, this teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children to a Father able and ready to help us and that we should pray with and for others. Romans chapter 8 speaks of the doctrine of adoption and how it relates to prayer. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. A reference to prayer. We pray knowing that in Christ we are children of God. And we have a, a deep sense of that and a conviction and a confidence because of Jesus Christ. Because by faith we are united to Him and He, being the true and natural Son of God, brings us into fellowship with God, makes us His, uh, his brethren, His uh, brothers, sons of God in Jesus Christ, knowing 
that his righteousness covers us, uh, or his blood covers us, his righteousness accounts for us, and thus we are welcomed into the family and are made, are brought into the number of the children of God. But when we pray, and we have all of these uh, kind of these magnificent truths that wash over us, something of the sense of God's greatness, uh, the sense in which praying in the name of Jesus Christ can furnish us with all of these aspects of our confidence, not only praying in the name of Christ, but being given the Holy Spirit, and then the doctrine of adoption. All of those things work together, but when we come to prayer, isn't it true that we often sense that all is not well? How many of you have, have come to prayer and you immediately are just floored with a sense of conviction. You sense that you have not been mindful of the ways in which you have broken God's law. You sense that you have uh, pushed Him to the side of your heart and your mind. You are ashamed uh, that you have not come to Him in reliance in the ways that you should have. When we come to prayer with a sense of, of worship and awe and reverence, we, we almost certainly will feel a sense that something is not quite right. So what do we do? What is something that is constantly there in the spirit of prayer? True prayer. Confession. Repentance. There in Psalm 65, verse 3, When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for, for our transgressions. William Gurnall comments on this verse. He says, David means here his own sins. Right? Oftentimes in the Psalms, there's allusion to the evil activity of others. But here he says, David means here his own sins. But see his faith. At the same time that these iniquities prevailed over him, he beholds God destroying them. As appears in the very next words, you atone for transgressions. See here, poor Christian. You who think that you'll never get your head above the water of your own sins. Holy David has a faith, not only for himself, but for all believers. The spirit of prayer, what fuels it is confession and repentance. Because as soon as we begin to sense our own unworthiness, there we have the confidence of faith to say, God atones for transgressions. It doesn't mean that we just sort of pass over the reality of our sins. We, we do want to consider uh, the many ways in which we offend uh, God, against God's holy law, the many ways in which we have strayed from Him, but we're filled with a faith that says God forgives. He atones for transgressions. He has wiped them clean, and He has wiped them clean in Jesus Christ. Then we sense in verse 4, we sense that there is no blessedness like being in covenant communion with this God. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near, it says in verse 4. And that there's truly, there is no blessedness that is like that. Blessed is the one that you choose and you bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. It is in forgiveness that we experience blessedness. It is in knowing that God can look upon us, even though we are imperfect, He can look upon us and bring us into His presence. 
Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 32. Psalm 83. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. There is nothing like being close to this God in covenant communion. So we pray because our God hears. He hears us in the name of Jesus Christ. He hears us through forgiveness. He welcomes us into his presence. Then we, we pray not only because God hears, but we pray because God helps. He is the God of, of salvation. Here's another way in, in which praying in the name of Christ fills us with a, a much greater confidence even than uh, the saints of old. Because, of course, he is the God of salvation in Christ. And therefore, the, the vista from which we pray is one of rich fulfillment. How has God helped us? How has He been our help? How has He proven that our help is in the name of the Lord? It's in Christ. And if you understand the depth of that help, you will not ever question God's faithfulness to help you. If you are focused on what God has done for you in His Son, if you are uh, satisfied in the salvation of His Son, then you will never question God's faithfulness to you, no matter the circumstances of your life. And no one would ever say, no one would ever pretend that there will never be circumstances that are extremely difficult, that test your faith, that take away your joy. But you will not ever question God's faithfulness to help you if you understand something of the depth of the help He gives to you in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 6 says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Right? What can this life do to you? What can this world do to you if the Lord is your helper? Romans 8, very famously, Who shall bring any charge against God, God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you know something of the benefits, love of God that comes to you in Christ, you will not question God's faithfulness to you. And there we see that God truly is the one who helps because he, hel he has helped us in salvation. We also see that he helps because he is mighty and his his might and his power is something that's placed before us very clearly in this psalm. By awesome deeds or by mighty deeds, verse 5, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. These mighty deeds, the awesome deeds of God, are the kinds of things that strike God's enemies with terror and dread but reverential awe and confidence in his people. 
We spoke this morning, Isaiah 36 and 37. The Assyrian armies, 185,000 struck dead by the angel of the Lord, right? It strikes fear and terror into the enemies of God, but fills God's people with confidence and reverential awe. Since God is mighty, He is the refuge for all who come to Him. He is the only possible refuge in all the corners of the earth. He is the hope, as it says in verse 5, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the, the farthest seas. So that second section of the psalm, which is verses 5 through 8, there we see what? That God is sovereign and the only one who has sovereignty over the many travails that this life can bring. He is Lord over the roaring of the waves, over the tumult of the peoples. He is the one who has established his strength, or he is the one who by his strength established the mountains. To truly glimpse the power of God then, leaves the heart in awe in verse 8. So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. So God is the one who hears. God is the one who helps. And so then as we close tonight, just some thoughts on praying to the sovereign God who hears and who helps. We are told that we are, we are to pray for things that are agreeable to his will. So there are things that we know God will give when we ask in faith with, with a heart that is sincere. Perhaps not in the exact way that we want. Perhaps not in the amount that we want. Right? We want, we want strength of faith. Right? God isn't necessarily going to make us the strongest of faith uh, in, in, in all of the world. But there are things that we know he will give when we ask in faith with a sincere heart. So, we pray that God would bring about our ultimate good and His glory. That's one of the things that we pray for. And that's something that we know God will give and He will grant. He will bring about our ultimate good and His glory. So we pray asking that God would bring us all things that will tend towards those two. We pray asking for sanctification and the mortification of the flesh. For all of those who are children of God, we know that God is always doing this. We know that He is always sanctifying us. We know that He is always bringing us further, further along the road to the crucifixion, the mortification of our flesh. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And so all of our prayers, in some sense, we know even if we are not asking for it specifically, in all of our prayers, God is bringing us further along the road of sanctification and the mortification of our flesh and corruption. William Carter says, we pray for pardon of sin, which is a pleasing thing, but it is not pleasing to the flesh, for it mortifies corruption and breaks the heart and engages to a holy life. And then he says this, every answer from our God to us, one way or another, shall tend to that way, destroying the corruption of, of our flesh. We pray for the ability to praise God in all circumstances. This is what God wants us to do. 1 Thessalonians 5, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We pray for His grace and 
his spirit, as the Heidelberg Catechism tells us. Those are the things that he gives from his heavenly storehouse. Heidelberg Catechism, God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who continually and with heartfelt longing ask God for these gifts and thank him for them. But we read in Luke chapter 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We pray then also for the understanding and wisdom to know God's will. Colossians 1.9, so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. James chapter 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. But there are many things we pray for, and we, we're not sure that it's what God wills for us. We're not sure that He is going to grant those things. These are things that are indifferent to our ultimate good and His glory as far as we can tell. And so when we pray for those things, when we bring our petitions before God, when we let our desires be made known to Him, how do we pray for those things? How do we ask for those things? Well, we ask in the confidence of knowing who He is and what He does. He is our Heavenly Father. He loves us. He will give us what we need to live faithfully for Him in this world. At the very least, He, he, he fills us with the things that we know are always a benefit of prayer. But when we bring our desires, our petitions before God, we pray in the confidence of knowing who He is. He's a God who loves us. He is our Heavenly Father. He's good. And He desires to give us all that is for our ultimate good and His glory. So what you see there at the end of Psalm 65 is, is a suing God for His goodness. By doing what? By appealing to that overflowing goodness that He has already shown. So they're praying for rain for the year, for the, for the crops of the year. What does it say? You crown the year with your bounty. In other words, uh, the, your bounty is like a crown around the entire year. Everywhere that we turn, we see your goodness, and we have seen your goodness. The whole year is encircled with God's blessings. They hedge around us. If you have eyes to see, you will see this to be true. If you have eyes to see, you will be able to turn in any direction in your life and see God's goodness, even through the difficult things, even through the painful things. All the good things that God gives to us below also, another thing that we see at the end of, of Psalm 65, uh, they are an analogy of His grace. So as we, we bring our petitions before Him, uh, appealing to His ultimate goodness that He has already shown to us, they become reminders of those things that He has poured out upon us in and through salvation. So Psalm 65, 9, the river of God is full of water. Verse 10, you water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. Right? There's this picture of, 
Water is just overflowing from God. And it is His great desire and His joy to give abundant, overflowing blessings. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. All of this is very clearly a picture, the compounding these pictures, to remind the reader, to remind the hearer, to remind us tonight that God overflows with blessings of goodness. And where do we find that chiefly? We find that first and foremost in salvation, which we always can rejoice in. We always can rejoice in that abundant grace that overflows to you, to me, the chief of sinners, who deserve it not, who deserve the very opposite of what he gives to us in Jesus Christ. And so we name those things back to him, just like in Psalm 65, you have crowned the year with your bounty. Your, you, you, you water the fields with an overflowing, abundant goodness. God delights when we name to him the things that he has done, not because he has forgotten, not because he needs to hear it so that his ego can be inflated, but rather he knows that we must hear it because it fills us with joy and satisfaction and assurance and faith. It reminds us of how good he is. And so we name back the things that he does. So just as the meadows and valleys shout and sing together for joy, so we do as well when we're reminded of the way that God has blessed us. And there are few gifts in this world like having the eyes of faith to see God's own hand of blessing in your life. If you're filled with confidence that God has blessed you and you have an assurance of his work and provision for you in your life, there are few gifts that come close to the comfort and joy of knowing that. So pray that God would give you those eyes to see his hand of blessing. Pray that God would give you a deeper hunger for prayer. Pray that he would give you wisdom to know his will. Pray that he would furnish you with the ability to rejoice in all circumstances. Pray that he would give you a worshipful heart. Pray naming back to him the things he has already done with the comfort of knowing that whatever comes next, he gives it to you as a loving father to his most beloved children. Pray with all of those things. And finally, pray. Pray to him, knowing that he hears and that he helps. Amen. Well, Father, we thank you for this word, and we, we pray uh, that you will help us to live in light of it. Give us joy in prayer. And give us comfort, contentment, satisfaction, all that you give. We pray uh, the confidence, knowing our great high priest, who intercedes for us and the Holy Spirit that he gives to us knowing that we are your beloved children in Christ. Amen.